Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles or your devices. Uh, and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start 2 Peter chapter 3 today as we continue our worship now through the study of God's Word. We're in this series called Make Every Effort, and we've creatively taken it from a verse in the first chapter of 2 Peter, where Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith, that there is something about following Jesus uh, that does require some effort on our behalf. And particularly what we're gonna learn now in in seasons of suffering and pain is when it really requires us to dig our heels in and to really uh, give some effort towards what God has called us to be and to do. So this morning, I just wanna teach through the first 13 verses of 2 Peter chapter three. We'll do the last part of chapter three next week. And then it's Thanksgiving, which is crazy. And then after Thanksgiving, we begin our Advent series, which will take us then into Christmas. And it'll be 2022 at that point. And like every new year that comes, it'll be the best year you've ever had. Guarantee it. Every year is the best one. So that's all coming. So just bear with us through 2021. Just deal with it. And then we'll get to the good year uh, after that. All right, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read through this passage, just the 13 verses. I'm going to give us some context around it. And then I want to dig in a bit. So what's beautiful about Scripture is that Scripture teaches us primarily about the character of God. It tells us who God is. And it does it often through allegory, through story. You learn a lot about a person when you hear stories about that person. When you hear accounts of their life, you you learn more than you do if you just read the back of their baseball card, right? I mean, you learn more about them through story. So we're gonna learn about the character of God today, but I don't want us just to leave it there. We're gonna talk about some theological things like the second coming of Jesus, but I don't want us just to leave it there as an idea. I don't want it just to be something that we believe and know and, and can win biblical trivial pursuit. I don't, I don't care about that. What I want us then is to take that and then say, okay, now that I know that about the character of God and I know this about the theology, the word, the study of God, what does that mean for me now? How does what I know about God affect how I live my life in November of 2021 in McDonough, Georgia? How, how does that apply to me today? So we're gonna start big and wanna work our way down uh, to some real nitty gritty here today. So let's read this together, 2 Peter chapter three. We're gonna start in verse one. Uh, I'm gonna read uh, these 13 verses and then we'll study together. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. If you have a a pen or you wanna highlight that word beloved, that's important. In both of them, both letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Remember how many times Peter has said, remember, reminder, remind. He's constantly calling back to something he's already taught them. By way of reminder, verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he references prophets, Old Testament prophets, and then the apostles in the New Testament. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, underline that word, deliberately overlook this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And, by, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow, he's not slack, some translations say, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Underline that word. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, the celestial bodies, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you get the sense over the past couple of weeks that Peter is like that old senile man who just says whatever he wants to say and doesn't care what you think about it? It sounds dark. He talks about the earth burning away. He's called the false prophets a number of names in chapter two. Peter is most likely in prison in Rome, and he writes this second letter to the churches in Roman provinces around Asia Minor, and they're under now persecution from the emperor Nero, who has blamed the Christians for the great Rome fire. And Nero is really, he's just, he's not okay. Nero's not okay, and he's subjecting the Christians to all of this. Peter knows what's happening in the churches. He loves these people, loves these Christians. And as he is facing his impending death, which would be an upside down crucifixion by his desire, we find out now what he really thinks about the world, what he really thinks about what he's been subjected to as a pastor and what he, what he really believes about those who are against uh, the work of the church or the way of Jesus. He, he lets us know what it is. But inside of this, it's gonna mess with us a little bit if we're not clear on the character of God. If we're not clear on who God is, we begin to land in one of two camps where um, God, God is just a hippie who loves everyone's peace and love, man, all the time, or, or God's just an angry dictator who can't wait to throw lightning bolts at anyone who seems to cross the line while they're driving. This, this is what it seems like. We have to pick, uh, pick one of the two things. But what we know throughout the course of Scripture is that God is not an either or, God is often a both and. And we have to at least mentally assent to that. If we can't wrap our minds around it, we at least have to find some way to believe it and understand it. Peter speaks of the second coming, the return of Jesus, which is an orthodox Christian belief and has been since uh, some of the Old Testament, but really since Jesus ascended into heaven. And the two men in shining apparel stood before the disciples and said, what are you looking at? He's gonna come back just like he went. Now go about your business and do what he's called you to do. There is a return of Jesus coming. He will return in bodily form. 
and he will right everything that has been wronged. He is returning, and that is a fact. That's a belief that we have as followers of Jesus. And if you think that's crazy, let me remind you of things you already believe. You believe a virgin gave birth to the Son of God. You believe a man was killed and left for dead for three days and rose from the dead. So to believe that that same God would return is not as crazy as you think it is. The things that we already believe point us to this very fact. And without the return of Jesus, we are to be pitied. We, don't, we have nothing left to live for. The return of Jesus is the capstone of all that we follow and believe as followers of Jesus. I don't know if when you were a kid, and maybe as you reached the age where you could stay home by yourself, which, when, which in the 80s was like six years old, you could stay home by yourself in the 80s. <laughs> now you gotta be like 21 with like all kinds of shots and stuff. But now, I mean, then, <laughs> then it was different. We didn't have helmets and whatever. Uh, so now, um, but think about when you were first able to stay home by yourself. When your mom or dad would say, hey, um, I'm gonna be gone. I just need to run to the store, but I will be back. Now, I don't know how you're wired, but for some of us, that was exhilarating. I have this whole house to myself. I feel like Macaulay Culkin at Christmas. You, yeah, you can't wait. For everything that's coming, you got booby traps prepared, and you're just, you're, you can't believe the freedom you have. And you're gonna just eat Cheetos in your mom and dad's bed. You're gonna drink all the Dr. Pepper you can find, or Dr. Thunder, depending on your economic state at the time. And so this is a... So for some of us, that was exhilarating. I I have this freedom until he or she returns. For some of us, it was a frightening thing. I mean, it could be be 12.30 in the afternoon and you are sure someone's gonna break in and steal everything in your house. They're They're gonna tie you up and force you to watch Barney on repeat. And that will be the end of everything you know of life. But the promise from the parent was that I, I will be back. Now, if you have siblings, right? If you have siblings, uh, you're responsible for those siblings. So then you're in the house. And for the, any firstborn here, any firstborn children? Yeah. You also loved the authority you had when your mom and dad were gone, didn't you? Even when they were there, you pretended you still had the authority. And so you loved that, but you also felt the responsibility of these people under your care. And so you, you tried to do the best you could with, with them. Now, if something happens with a sibling, and let's, let's just say, Let's just say, I mean, I've heard stories of siblings um, being mean to each other. Our kids are not like that, but maybe your kids are. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But maybe, uh, so parents are gone. Uh, one kid uh, hits, hits his sister. And the sister says, I'm gonna tell mama when she gets home. Now, we know mama's coming home. And we know kind of about the time. Now, back in the 80s, we had no idea when they were coming. They just showed up. Now you've got ring cams at the front of your neighborhood and you know everything that's happening in, in McDonough. You know it all. And, but, uh, so you know mama's coming back. Now, the one who was injured and desperate for mama to come back cannot wait for her to return, right? And the oldest one now spends the next 30 minutes trying to persuade the youngest one that he didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. I, that wasn't me. I, that surely I couldn't have, or please don't tell mama, I'll, I'll do anything, right? I'll, you, can, you can play the Nintendo on my turn. I'll let you do that if you just don't tell mama. Now, Jesus is returning. He's coming back. And depending on where we sit in relation to that Jesus determines how we feel about his return. If you're like the oldest one and you're the one that's caused the problems, you want him to delay as long as he can until you can get things right. For the younger one who just needs somebody to come help and to save, you hope it's today. 
You hope it's in the next 10 minutes. Please come rescue me from this. Well, Peter's going to address some of that here today. But first, let's talk about the character of God. So I've got um, a chart to show you, and because I just love when two circles overlap, um, we're gonna do that again. So here's, here's the character of God, and I just think it helps us a lot to understand some things about God. So at the top, we know that God is great, which means he's majestic, and he is full of power and authority, and he is good. He is the both and. We have a hard time sometimes wrapping our mind around that because we don't know a whole lot of great majestic people or things that are also good. Another way to say it is that God is sovereign. He's king. He does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants to do it. He, this is who he is, and he's also kind. So on the sovereign extreme, we have Hitler, right? And sometimes people view God as just another version of Hitler, who just hates a certain group of people and can't wait to destroy all of them. This is, this is on that side. Then on, on the other extreme, on the other extreme, we, we just have somebody who just wants to give all the things to all the people all the time and doesn't care whether or not you deserve it, who's just loving and kind and, and just loves everyone and hands out flowers and rides a unicorn while he eats gumdrops. And this is, this is who some of us think that God is. It's the blonde-haired feather Jesus with the light blue sash. This is who we believe God is. God is all about his glory. He's all about his glory. Everything is for him and through him and revolves around him. And yet he is also fully about our good. God is a God of judgment and wrath. He is. And he is a God of salvation and rescue. God is a God of truth, 100% unadulterated black and white truth. And he is a fully a God that's all about grace and understanding and mercy in our time of need. And it's not that God has to pick and choose when he's either of these. He's all of these all the time. All of them all the time. This is the character of God. This both and. It's never changing. This is who he has been from the beginning of creation. This is important for us as we study through this because depending on where you land, you would see God as one or the other, and so the coming of Jesus carries a different weight than what I think biblically it is intended to carry. So let's go through this passage, and we're gonna, we're gonna dig in here just a bit. Let's start in verse one. Peter says this is now the second letter, which is why biblical scholars have called it Second Peter. Brilliant, just brilliant people. Uh, called it Second Peter. This is the second letter that I am writing to you, and then he calls them Beloved. So remember, we're coming out of chapter two where Peter just spends 21 verses going off about false teachers. He actually began that at the end of chapter one and he, he leaves nothing on the table or off the table. Everything's there for what he thinks and believes. So now he shifts a bit and he's done blasting them and now Peter turns his attention, his affection to the believers, to the church. He says, now I'm writing to you, my beloved, the ones that I love. As if to say, you wanna know why I feel that way about false teachers? Because I love you. I'm writing to you, my beloved, and in both of them, I am stirring up, I'm provoking your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's the idea of a purity of mind. What he's saying is, I know you're distracted by everything happening around you, by the persecution you're facing under Nero, by the suffering you're experiencing, by the economic hardships you're in because you're a Christian and you can't buy and sell in the marketplace at this point because you're worried uh, for the safety of your children. They have to continue to grow up in a world just like this. So I know you're distracted. I wanna draw you back to one pure thought in your purest of mind. 
And he wants to do it not by offering something new, but by offering something they should have already known and learned by way of reminder. Verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So simply put, Peter wants to stir up their affection for the scriptures. He just went off about false teachers and how they're gonna sneak in, they're gonna share destructive heresies. And it's gonna sound a lot like the truth, but you need to be firm and secure in who God is and what truth actually is. So what he's saying now is, beloved, I wanna stir you up, I wanna provoke you, I wanna provoke your love of the scriptures. I wanna draw you to them. Verse three. Knowing this first of all, first of all means supremely or of utmost importance above all else. Remember this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing because scoffers gonna scoff, am I right? (laughs) So scoffers are coming in with scoffing. Uh, Some of your translations say mockers. Some might even say jokers. They're gonna mock, they're gonna scoff everything that you claim to believe and to be true. Now, there's some of us in here, we love us some scoffers because we love confrontation and we love to fight and we love to be right. And you don't care where the scoffers come from, whether it's a post on social media or some random bumper sticker you see on 75, you're gonna make sure the scoffer knows that you know what's right and they're wrong. And Peter has cautioned us about that, saying the Lord will deal with them. This is not about that. But he's saying there are scoffers. They're coming in the last days. The last days for us began at the resurrection of Jesus, began what biblically is called the last days. So in the last days, there will be scoffers. There will be mockers. There will be those who uh, lean into anything that's against the word of God. Now, how does God feel about scoffers? We can go back to the Old Testament. You can read about Jeremiah. You can read uh, words from Isaiah and Amos. But here's one from Malachi chapter two. The prophet Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, well, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Scoffers, the main tactic of a scoffer is to say, where's your God now? Oh, that God you follow, how's that working out? Because where is he now? Where has he been? Where has he been in your cancer diagnosis? Where has he been in your marriage struggles? Where has he been uh, while your kids are getting arrested and put in prison? Where has he been? Where has God been when you've lost your job? Where has God been when you've walked through infertility? Where has he been? Scoffers will claim that. And they will point to the fact that if you're going through this, God surely must not be who he claims to be. Scoffers come in the last days with all kinds of scoffing. And they follow their own sinful desires. Now, Peter is seeking to stir up the church's affection for truth because scoffers are effective, aren't they? Aren't scoffers, haven't they been for you and for me? They have been for me in seasons of suffering and trial and hard times and the belief somehow that gets into my own mind and my own heart. 
I followed Jesus since I was five years old. I went to a Bible college. I'm a pastor. And yet somehow scoffers still make their way in. And they say, yeah, but if God was who he says he is. And if you really did obey and follow God, then why are you walking through this stuff? Why are people treating you like that if you've done the right thing? Scoffers make their way in and they're effective. And so Peter is not pointing them to apologetics. Peter is pointing them to the character of God. This is who God is. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 4 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. This man's delight is in the law of the Lord and the scripture, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked, the scoffer, are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Peter's trying to get his people to be like trees planted by streams of living water with roots firmly planted, being nourished, even in seasons of wind that would blow the chaff away from the wicked but keeps those who are firm in the word standing. This is what he desires for them. So what are the scoffers saying? Look at verse four. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where Where is this Jesus? Where is this God? Because things are just getting worse for you here in these provinces. Things are just getting worse if you claim the name of Jesus. Where's your God now, suckas? Where where is he? Where's your God? Things don't seem to be trending upward for you. But you keep telling me that God is a God of love and how he loves you and he is for you and, and all these things. So where is he now? You think you know God, the scoffers say, and yet the evidence points to a God who's not the one that you are worshiping. Where is your God now? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What do we learn about the scoffers in verse four? They know some scripture. They know some truth. And like the serpent in the garden, they know just enough to twist it for their own means. Because the scoffer says, yeah, but I mean, the things that they had promised, but ever since they died, ever since the apostles died, ever since the prophets died, ever since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had passed away, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse for us. Where is this God we're supposed to be worshiping? Peter says in verse five, these scoffers, they deliberately overlook this fact. That word deliberately, it's intentional. So what he's gonna say is they're not ignorant They're just choosing not to remember some things about the character of God. They're so focused on the now that they've missed the past of God. They've missed uh, the character of God throughout creation. They're deliberately avoiding these things that they might point out the things that make us question everything about who we are. And they're following their own sinful desires or lusts. They they wanna feel good about life. They, They wanna not be convicted. And so they avoid scripture that convicts them, they avoid teaching that convicts them, and they cling to the things that support whatever it is they want to believe. They attack and twist the word of God to justify their behavior. They deliberately neglect the character of God and point to some weird idiosyncrasies that they can latch onto to make us question everything. The old pastor Warren Wearsby says it this way, if your lifestyle contradicts the word of God, you must either change your lifestyle or change the word of God. Now we'll get to this here in a bit, but I wonder how many of us have become scoffers. 
and that we've in, been in seasons and places of conviction, but we avoid those places. We avoid that teaching. We avoid that scripture. We avoid scripture altogether. Because when we know that we are in contradiction of the word of God, we've got two choices. Change the way we're living or change what we believe about the word of God. And these scoffers have refused to change their lifestyle instead of changing or twisting the word of God. So here's the point for us as we walk through this morning. When you can't believe God's promise, look at his patterns. When you're having a hard time believing the promises of God, look back at his patterns. Because there are times in the present where it doesn't all add up. It doesn't all make sense. And so this is when we're vulnerable to the scoffer, when we're vulnerable to deception, when we're uh, vulnerable to anything that makes us feel good from the false teachers. And what Peter's going to say is, hey, just because it doesn't look good now doesn't mean God isn't good. When you can't believe God's promises, look back and remember God's patterns. So here's what he says in verse five of chapter three. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed, and look at this, out of water and through water by the word of God, verse six. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water, and perished. What he's saying is these scoffers are missing something. What they're missing is the character of God has been proven over and over and over again. And if they would just take a step back to see today in light of yesterday, they would understand that today has the same bright tomorrow. But instead, when we're so focused on today, we miss out on the promises that lead us to a better tomorrow. So what are they missing? What are they deliberately overlooking? They're deliberately overlooking what God does and how God does it. It says in verse five, the earth was formed out of water and through water. To a Hebrew, particularly to a Jewish person, water is representative of chaos. It's why on the Sea of Galilee, when the storms arise on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus calms the storms. It's why all the way back to Genesis chapter one, when it tells us how the earth was created, that it was the spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep. There was chaos with no substance and God took the chaos and he formed it. But notice what Peter is saying. He formed the earth. He, he created order out of the chaos, but he used the chaos to bring order out of the chaos. Does that make sense? God institutes his own chaos. He often brings order to chaos through his own chaos. So what feels to us like chaos is often just God's working out of his plan for order. And what's happening for the churches here in 2 Peter is that they're experiencing what seems like chaos and Peter's trying to remind them, don't be deceived by the mockers and the scoffers. This is how God has always worked. This is the character of God. This is what he does. This has always been how he has done it. In fact, the chaos is not evidence of his avoidance, but evidence of his presence. Look at the life of Jonah. Jonah runs in disobedience from God's command to go share the gospel. And God brings his own chaos, ironically, through the waters and through a fish. And the chaos in Jonah's life is actually meant to bring order back to what has been chaos in the world. 
This is how God has always worked. God is always in charge. And what's great about God is that he's always in charge and he always stays involved. There's never a second in which he's not in charge, in which he's sovereign. And there's never a second in which he's not involved. This is what Peter is reminding the church by way of reminder through the the old holy prophets and your own apostles. They've said this very same thing for thousands of years. This is who God is. It's who he's always been. God says, I created it and I show up in it. I created this world and I will continue it. And the way that God shows up often brings chaos, doesn't it? You can look at Genesis. You can follow the story of Noah's Ark like Peter does here. The Tower of Babel, they have one language they're trying to, to build to reach God, to become God, and God institutes chaos, which then actually brings back order to his world. And then fast forward to Acts chapter two, God uses the chaos of Pentecost to write the chaos of Babel. He takes what was a bunch of languages at Babel, and he makes it so in Acts chapter two, people are speaking many languages, but hearing only one word. This is what God does. He leverages the water, the chaos, to bring order to what the water created. This is what God does and who he is. In fact, the very incarnation of Jesus at Christmas, would you not say that was a time of chaos? There's a season of chaos, 400 years of silence. Things are going crazy spiritually. God sends Jesus. And then the authorities lose their mind. Firstborn start getting killed. There's poverty in the land. Mary and Joseph have to travel hundreds of miles to to reach somewhere because of some weird edict, which feels like chaos, but it's actually God's divine sovereign plan to bring back and restore order in the world. God often leverages his chaos to bring order to our chaos. Are you with me? This is how God works. It's how he's always worked. It's what he's always done. And Peter is telling them, "You you know what they forgot? The scoffers forgot? that what's happening right now, the chaos you're feeling right now is not because things are out of control, because things are in God's very hand of control. I don't know what you're feeling today. I don't know what 2020 and 21 have felt like to you. But I will say this, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what has felt like chaos to you and to me has felt like the complete calm control of God's hand in the world. God often institutes his chaos to bring order to the world's chaos. The scoffers are leveraging the chaos of the world to say God can't be who he says that he is. And Peter's saying they're missing the point. This is actually who God is. This is exactly who God is. Colossians 1, Paul says in verses 15 through 17 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold or consist together. He created all things, he holds all things together. He created it and he shows up in it. This is who God is and it's what God does. And the scoffers neglect that deliberately. They leave out the fact, oh, by the way, this is just kind of how God works. Instead, they've pointed you to your chaos. They've opened your eyes to the chaos in your world and they've left out the fact that, oh, I forgot. This is simply how God brings order to our lives. Verse seven, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Well, that sounds awful. But do not overlook this one fact beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Let me just say this to you pastorally. This is not a formula to figure out some divine riddle of, God's, of Jesus' return. This is not a mathematical equation for us to figure out how many days equals a thousand years and then from there, when is he gonna return? He told us we're not gonna know. So we can probably stop trying to figure it out. Instead, it's a statement of God's existence outside of time and our complete dependence upon it. It's felt like forever, God, since you showed up and God's saying, forever? It's only been a thousand years. God, would you come back, come back quickly? And God says, sure, give me a thousand years. He exists outside of it and we are so dependent upon it. God, verse nine, the Lord is not slow. He's not slack to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's not slow or slack. In fact, he's patient. He's steadfast towards you. Why? He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Because he's patient with those who need to repent. And if you're like the little sister who got hit by her brother, you want God to come back now and deal with it. And the older brother says, just give me a second. Give me a chance to figure this out. And God, who is the vindicator, and God, who is the just, returns when he is supposed to return. He's not being slack. He's not being lazy. He's not being distant and removed. In fact, he's just being patient. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. It's all of us to reach repentance. But he says that in light of verse seven, that there is judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a reckoning. There is a day in which we must give account for the faith and the way in which we lived our lives. There is a day coming for that. And yet God is delaying that as long as possible. Why? Because he desires that no one should fall, but that all should come to repentance. Look at Exodus 34, verses six and seven. The Lord passed before Moses when giving him the 10 commandments and he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a, merciful and gracious, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Yeah, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of grace and he is a God of justice. Romans 2, 4 says, do you presume on the riches and, kind, and his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for wrath for, your, for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What does God desire according to verse nine of 2 Peter chapter three? Repentance. Repentance. Not church attendance, not Bible memorization, not singing and raising your hands, not playing the guitar, not teaching a class, not giving above 10%, not serving in preschool. What does God desire? He needs repentance from you and from me. He needs us to turn from our sinful ways, to hate our sin, and then to run towards and love his goodness and holiness 
Repentance is what is desired. Repentance. Why is God waiting? Because he's giving you time to repent. Why is God waiting? Why, why is he slow in coming as some uh, see slowness? Because he is patient and he's giving you a chance and he's giving me a chance to repent. But don't be deceived. There is a day coming when he will require payment for what has been done. There is a day coming. And yet his patience towards us is meant to lead us to repentance, not to be taken advantage of, but to lead us to repentance. Because verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's unexpected. We don't know when it's coming. Thieves don't announce their arrival. Come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, well then what sort of people ought you to be? If this is all fading away, what should we do? in lives of holiness and godliness, as we wait for and hasten, we hurry the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I don't know if you're the kind of person who complains at restaurants. Any of you complain at restaurants? Idiots, you should not do that. No, we do, right? We complain at restaurants, things aren't the way that we want them to be or it takes too long. And so then you complain then you tell your server and then your server goes and gets the manager and the manager returns. And sometimes the manager returns and says, tell me the problem. You're like, well, the service was terrible. Um, all the food is cold. I, I just, I don't think I can keep eating what you've placed in front of me. And then on top of that, I have to pay for it. And sometimes the manager says, listen, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And then he turns and walks away. You're sorry? That does nothing for me. Well, you need to know that when, when the Lord returns, when Jesus returns, it's not to come and say, listen, I'm sorry your experience was bad. It's to make it right. He's not gonna come and say, oh yeah, that, I was there too, that was pretty bad. No, when Jesus returns, he says, yeah, that was awful. In fact, I've made it better now. I've paid for your meal. You don't have to eat that, I got something better for you. This is the day of the Lord. And Peter reminds the churches, he's coming. He is coming. And when he does, he's full of grace and he's full of justice. This is who God is. So that's the theological idea of the return of Jesus. But let me just, let's just drill down a bit for you and for me. Are you experiencing chaos in your life today? Are you experiencing where it feels like everything's out of control? It's like you can't get a grip on anything. And what's in your own heart now is, God, where are you? Where are you? Because the, you said you would be here. You said you would save. You said you would help. You said you would heal. You said you would restore. Where are you? And what happens when your own mind becomes the scoffer? What happens when the scoffing of the world makes its way into your heart and your soul? What happens when you're the one doubting now? When you're the one speaking to your own soul, I can't believe you think this is who God is. I can't believe you thought he would actually come through for you. He's never come through for you. What happens when, when you are the scoffer? What happens when the scoffing and the mocking makes its way into your own heart and your own life? And when the chaos of the world 
It's all you can see. And the chaos in your life and in your family and with your kids and with your wife and your husband, that's all that you see in the world. What happens then? What happens? Well, what happens is that when you can't believe God's promise, you look to his patterns. And I'm gonna tell you today, you know what God does? God uses chaos to bring order to your chaos. And in his slackness, in his slowness, in his patience towards you, he has allowed chaos into your life that he might draw you back into the order of his son. This is what God does. It's not that he's absent. In fact, it's that he's present. It's the fact that he's intervened. That when Jesus showed up on the scene, the whole world spiraled out of control. This is what he does. This is who he is. He hasn't left you. He's with you. You want to know how I know he's with you? Because he's always been with you. This is who he's always been. He's always brought order from the water and through the water. It's what he does. There's hope for you today. Whatever the scoffers have said or what your, your scoffing has said to yourself, this is who he is. He's being patient with you. And what does Second Peter tell us? Why is he being patient? That you might repent. You might turn from your sinful ways. It's not about the government. It's not about your boss. And it's not about your kids or your spouse. This is about you. It's about you today. He's being patient with you. And there's coming a day where he will demand payment. But he's being patient for you that you would accept the payment that he's offered to you on your behalf. And how he saved you is how he sustains you. It's all through the finished work of Jesus. It's through the empty cross and the empty tomb. How do you get through what you're going through with your kids? How do you get through what you're going through with your job? How do you get through what you're going through with your spouse? Through the finished work of Jesus. That's how. That's how. And you can try all the other things and you can read all the books and go to all the blogs, listen to all the podcasts and talk to all the experts. But I'm telling you right now, the God who created you knows how to sustain you. And why is he slowing things down? Why is the chaos seem to be escalating? Because he's giving you time. And today is the day of salvation for us today. Don't wait, don't delay. God brings order to our chaos by instituting his own chaos in our lives. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. For some of us today, this is what God has done to draw us to our first repentance, to draw us to salvation today. What's happened in your life has become chaotic. And what God is doing through the chaos is that he's tearing down all the things that you've held onto for comfort and stability and security. And it feels like things are out of control and I need you to know, and I'm gonna believe it for you, things are not out of control. They've never been more in control. God is taking the waters of chaos that he might draw you to salvation. And so maybe today your eyes have been opened to the fact that God hasn't left you. In fact, he's been pursuing you the whole time. And you're burdened and overwhelmed and you can't keep your head up. You feel like you're drowning every time you open your eyes. You'd rather just be asleep or be drunk. Listen to me today, please. The Lord is after you that you might repent. He's patient. So maybe today is the day of your salvation that you would say, Lord, I, 
I need you to rescue me from the penalty of sin and death. I believe that you are who you say you are. I confess my sin to you. And God has allowed the exhaustion that he might say to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Maybe that's you today, and you just need to, for the first time to give your life to Jesus. You can do it right now. By crying out to him to save that you believe he is who he says he is. I think the majority of us, though, are people who have been following Jesus, and yet we've created a chaos in our lives, and we're looking for him to restore order, and we've neglected the fact, like the scoffers, that how God restores order is through his own chaos. So maybe what you're feeling today is not God's removal from your life, but in fact, it is his deep, intimate presence in your life. That in his grace, he has sent the storms. In his grace, he has sent the fires. In his grace, he has sent uh, the trial and tribulation and chaos. So maybe today you can't believe that. Okay. Well, then look at his patterns. It's how he's always worked. It's what he's always done, and that's why we have his word. This is what he does. That we might repent. Quit playing around with this sin. Repent. As he restores order to your chaos. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for evidence of your character. God, sometimes it feels so contrary to what we believe or what our hearts tell us to believe or what uh, we've been led by the scoffers to believe. But God, the truth is in your word. This is what you do and it's how you've always done it. God, I know there are people in the room today who are living lives of chaos. And it feels like punishment, but would you remind them it's actually your presence and you are restoring order, but the first step to order is repentance. That we finally change our mind and hate our sin. We call it what it is. It's not a mistake. It's not some behavior. It's not just my personality. This is sin. And give us a hatred for it that we might turn from it and run towards you today. Would you give us the courage to repent, the courage to trust that you are who you say you are, and may you restore. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.